Hello, and we are so excited that you have joined us today. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers, with DKB Med. Um, as we start uh, 2022, we have now entered a phase of the pandemic with Omicron causing more COVID-19 cases than we've ever seen, and hospitalizations are also on the rise. Uh, fortunately, you're in for a great presentation today with our excellent faculty who will do their best to make sense of it all. Uh, for those of you that may be watching us for the first time, welcome. And if participated in some of our over 150 webcasts on this important topic, we do welcome you back. Uh, we've been developing COVID education since March of 2020. So nearly two years later, we are incredibly grateful for the progress we've all made in managing patients during this pandemic. Um, before we get to today's program, a few housekeeping notes. You'll notice several windows on the console. Please move these around and minimize what you don't need. And you're also able to submit questions for the faculty by clicking the Q&A button on the left side of the window. Um, and you'll also be able to access the evaluation and the test for credit by clicking that claim credit button. Your thoughts and comments are important and will help us develop future activities. Okay, so here are those great faculty I mentioned earlier. Um, for those of us who have been with us since last year, you will recognize them. And for our new learners, um, please meet Dr. Vega and Dr. Allwater. Uh, thank you both of you again for taking time out of your busy practices to be here today. Great to be here, thank you. Yep, thanks so much, Faith. Thank you. Here are our faculty's disclosures today. Uh, this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. So all activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Please note that the material presented is current as of today, um, as we record January 25th of 2022. Um, so for the most up-to-date guidance, if you're watching this later on demand, we do advise you to go to the NIH and IDSA for the most contemporary guidance. Um, today's learning objectives are to evaluate best practices for treating ambulatory patients with COVID-19 and describe current management strategies and identify potential treatments for patients with COVID-19 requiring hospitalization. Um, we do have a few knowledge questions today to kick off our webinar. Um, if you don't see the submit button, please scroll down. It can get cut off on some of the smaller screens here. So uh, let's start with our first pretest question. This is Will is a 14-year-old boy with sickle cell disease who has mild COVID-19, most likely due to the Omicron variant, with first symptoms four days earlier. Which of the following lists drugs that are preferred for patients like Will? So bamlanivimab and evizivimab, or molnupiravir, casarivimab, imdevimab, or fluvoxamine, um, nermatrelvir, or ritonavir, or citrovimab, um, and uh, nermatrelvir and ritonavir, or molnupiravir. Uh, you will uh, please have to excuse me for the pronunciation there. Our faculty will correct that for me later on. You did great. That was that was excellent. It's, it is no easy task for anyone. <laughs> Thank you. All right, and we'll move on to the next one. Um, which of the following statements about nermatrelvir or ritonavir is correct? Um, is it FDA approved for patients 18 years or older at high risk of complications? Must be initiated within three days of symptom onset. Uh, no drug drug interactions of concern or administered orally twice daily for five days. Okay, and our next question. In the multi-center retrospective comparative effectiveness study of remdesivir by Garibaldi and colleagues, significantly reduced mortality was observed in which group of patients? Is it patients not receiving supplemental oxygen, patients receiving low flow oxygen, patients receiving high flow oxygen, or all hospitalized patients. Okay, and finally, this is a true or false, according to the recovery trial. Uh, concomitant, you got it, you got this. Concomitant use of corticosteroids blunted the benefit of tocilizumab. Is this true or false? Thank you for that. Um, and with that, uh, as uh, the audience is answering this question, I will hand this off to Dr. Vega. So Dr. Vega, 
uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure, Faith. Great job. Thanks for going through those pre-test questions and our, our wonderful <laughs> array of treatments. It's great to have treatments. Um, it's tough to pronounce them. Uh, it's just a fact. Um, and so we'll be going through all these treatments and we wanted to level set. Um, I'm going to be referring to the various therapies using their generic names, but we wanted this slide on board just because you may know it better from its brand name. And so we thought it was important to share this information just as an information slide. Um, I really appreciate everybody in our audience joining us right now. Uh, it's incredibly important. It's also really tiring, um, and this is why. This slide explains exactly why. We're seeing this surge. The current surge with Omicron um, easily um, takes over in terms of number of cases in the United States uh, versus any previous surge. Um, hard to believe. Um, I think we're all still feeling a little bit punch drunk from um, so many cases coming in from so many people getting sick, and that's combined with a uh, lot of misinformation about out there still about COVID-19 um, and just a lot of fatigue, fatigue across the board. And now I'm seeing it in my practice, in my community, kind of a, it's more of a, a viral fatalism, like, well, you know, I got my I got vaccines, I got in line for my booster and now and I've been trying to take care of myself and protect myself. and. You know, now it just seems like everybody you know has this infection and I'm, I'm probably just going to get it too. So we're trying to combat that, particularly in our folks who are at really high risk uh, for infection. And it has, um, you know, I just saw a patient yesterday at an incredibly elevated risk, a 72-year-old who had previously refused vaccine, and she got her first dose last month um, because of this Omicron spike where, it, you know, somehow that finally clicked that this is really a danger. It's really out there, really prevalent. So, um, you know, those are those are rays of hope because she may not be protected very well during this surge, but the next one, hopefully she's in a lot better shape. Um, and this is why. And it's just amazing to think about how Omicron, you know, when you look back at the week of December 11th, 2021, when it represented uh, less than 10 percent of the variants, uh, you know, with uh, being um, being identified in the United States and just how it raged like wildfire and quickly moved up. So now it's, you know, 99% of all uh, COVID-19 infections are due to the Omicron variant. Um, just really uh, scary and amazing just to see how far it's come and the impact it's had overall. And so, you know, thankfully at this point, you know, as, as you said, we're on January 25th, we are seeing uh, the rates decline. If I can go back a slide, you know, we are seeing overall some some declination in the uh, in the rates, particularly it's geographically based. We're seeing more on the East Coast, um, some in the upper Midwest, whereas other states in the, across the plains, maybe they're getting uh, hit really hard now with Omicron. So it, we're not out of the woods yet, but we're hopeful that that uh, decline is going to continue. And so we think about prevention. Of course, when I think about prevention, I'm in primary care, so I'm still out there trying to rally the masses and the troops to, you know, keep fighting, to keep wearing masks, to keep washing our hands, to keep out of situations as best they can um, where they're going to be in crowded conditions with a lot of people they don't know. It's just harder and harder to do that, obviously, as we move forward. We've also, of course, vaccination plays an important role, and that's a whole nother talk. Um, we're still, you know, of course, pushing that as, as a primary strategy uh, to reduce the impact of COVID-19. But we also have uh, preventive measures in uh, the form of these monoclonal antibodies. You know, the bad news is that a couple of these monoclonal antibodies, in fact, the ones that we were using most commonly several months ago, um, have not been uh, effective against Omicron. Therefore, uh, they aren't to be used right now. And so that really left us in a lurch and in a, in a bit of a crisis because we had no available uh, therapies for prevention nor for treatment for, for a while. Now, you know, we always had citrovimab. Citrovimab, if you notice on this chart, has not had a change. It's different variants have rolled out, including most recently Delta and then Omicron. Citrovimab was uh, reliable in terms of its efficacy. Um, and we also have a, a new uh, kid on the block, Tixavegemab uh, with Sugavimab, and that one can also be effective. And so we'll, we'll be talking about each, each of these individually, but this gives you a landscape and why, if you've been thinking about using monoclonal antibodies, you know, that landscape has changed, especially in the past month. And this is just some of the core data that the NIH uses to, to make those uh, calls as to when um, 
particular, uh, you know, monoclonal may not be effective against certain variants. And if you look at Sertrovimab as highlight here, you can see on this forest plot that, yes, there is some research that indicates it's less active against the Omicron variant, um, but there's one study that says that it was, it was highly effective. And overall, if you look at the sum of that, it probably has, um, you know, less of an impact. The Omicron variant has less of an impact on Sertrovimab uh, versus, say, Banlib, Banlibimab, Sivimab, uh, Kesarimab, plus Indevimab. So, uh, therefore, Sertrovimab is really what we have in our armamentarium when it comes uh, to treatment and prevention right now with the uh, evolution of uh, this agent as well. So, uh, Tixagevimab with Sivimab is different than our previous uh, monoclonal antibodies because it's really been tested as a, a pre-exposure prophylaxis. So, we know that some of the older and more established monoclonal antibodies, established means for a year in this case, uh, monoclonal antibodies have been effective in terms of post-exposure prophylaxis, but that's, this is actually uh, designed for folks um, for as pre-exposure prophylaxis, particularly when they were, will be not expected to have a good response to the vaccine. So these are your significantly immunocompromised folks, and then maybe you have some individuals who had a severe reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine, this could be a therapy for them as well. And this is a, uh, it's this uh, recommendation is based on a large trial of over 5,000 unvaccinated adults. You can see, as with a lot of trials, there um, it's a lot of high-risk individuals in this trial and a lot of uh, people of color. Um, and overall, you saw a significant reduction through about six months or so of, um, of incidental COVID-19 uh, with symptomatic illness. Uh, so, uh, particularly for individuals who might be at high risk and who are immunocompromised, um, this uh, tixagevimab plus sogavimab can be effective. And it's, it's thought that the efficacy is going to last up to six months. So, it could be a, um, a, a nice protection for folks who can't get the normal protection um, out of the vaccine. It's given in an interesting fashion. It's two um, intermuscular doses, but they're given at the same uh, sitting. So, in terms of the setup, it, it's not an IV infusion. And so, therefore, it's, it's a little bit easier to administer. Um, and uh, if, the, if you're giving it to somebody who, was, who did receive the vaccine, you decide, gosh, either a bad reaction to the vaccine or uh, you're not going to, you know, maybe you didn't, that the vaccine is not going to be as effective for you, you have to wait uh, at least two weeks before uh, initiating treatment with this monoclonal antibody. And it's not indicated for treatment at this point. It doesn't have the EUA either for, uh, for post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, whereas if you remember, and I'm just going to go through this really briefly um, as a review, because this is not pertinent to, you know, what we have in front of us right now with Omicron, because we know that uh, castorimab plus indevimab is not effective. But in case you hadn't, um, you know, known this or maybe applied this, to, say, during uh, the Delta surge, um, that post-exposure prophylaxis for individuals who were in contact uh, with someone with COVID-19 uh, within the past 96 hours, um, and especially if they had not been uh, vaccinated, um, these uh, agents like castorimab plus indevimab did have a uh, good effect in terms of reducing um, particularly symptomatic infection, as you can imagine, but even asymptomatic infection combined with symptomatic, there was a significant reduction. So you can give a drug like castorimab plus indevimab, and this was a sub-Q administration, again, much easier than the IV infusion in terms of some of the logistics around uh, giving it prophylactically but it doesn't have a role right now. I think this is just, you know, for our knowledge that these monoclonal antibodies may come back as we get new variants. It's not pertinent to, uh, to practice right now, nor is the use of banlimumab and sivimab. This, this uh, agent should not be used for now with Omicron, um, but in this study, uh, it was applied as a post-exposure prophylaxis in a skilled nursing facility, which is really an important place uh, to protect individuals and uh, showed a significant uh, reduction in terms of incident infection among both residents of the skilled nursing facility and staff. And staff have been particularly hard hit. I'm sure in your health center, just like in mine, um, staff have really been bearing the brunt of Omicron. We have um, you know, shortages and delays every single day. Um, so this is, you know, filed away during, you know, hopefully we don't need a lot of these agents ever again, but, um, but I think it's a good time to bring in Paul. Uh, Paul, so I'm going to go back uh, to, to our epidemiology slides for a second. And uh, what do you think, Paul? I want you to, you know, use your crystal ball and, uh, and tell us what you think about, you know, the next, the next wave. Are we looking at um, post-Omicron? Post because I think it will abate uh, significantly in the next, you know, four to six weeks. 
then what happens? Do you want to place a bet? Yeah, not really. I, I don't really <laughs> want to bet on this. On the one hand, there's quite encouraging aspects that these are just lab-reported infections. Many people were unable to get tested or had home antigen-based testing, so these numbers are far higher. Uh, there's hopes that uh, people that are unimmunized uh, now have Omicron immunity, um, and perhaps that will be uh, protective and lead to uh, leading this virus into more of a routine, mundane respiratory virus. But, uh, you know, this has been uh, a virus that has had uncanny abilities to surprise us. And the one aspect about Omicron immunity is in, if you haven't been immunized, at least preliminary studies have suggested Omicron immunity, for example, is not very good against Delta or Alpha virus variants. And so that means that there could still be opportunities for yet another variant uh, to get uh, involved. So, you know, I've been uh, continuing to preach that even if you've been infected, natural immunity is not the cat's meow here. You really would be best uh, to pursue immunization post-COVID and, and include a boosting uh, dose of the mRNA vaccine. So uh, that's still a message I think will still be the best way to try to help uh, get us out of the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's good to stay on that message now um, because it, it, there, there is this huge um, psychological issue at play where everybody's just feeling so burnt out. And again, this is patients and providers. Um, and so, you know, we really have to steel ourselves that, you know, this is not going to be the end. Um, you know, there's, there, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but, you know, one thing we can't say is that, well, once Omicron is, is gone, you know, we will go back to, you know, maybe small outbreaks here and there, but, you know, everything will be very back to normal. I don't think any of us feel comfortable saying that. And, it, and it's important to start to think ahead just because I think that helps us psychologically to prepare. Uh, so we're ready for the workload. We're ready for you know, continuing prevention measures, and we continue to to work through this as an as an ongoing crisis, which it really is. Um, all right, so I'm going to flip back to where we uh, where we stand now, and this is a nice slide. So this is interesting that NIH not only provides recommendations now. So yeah, so I'm I'm on the front lines of treatment for uh, for COVID nineteen, and it, you know for the past few weeks we've been desperate for therapy to actually treat uh, COVID-19. We, we're seeing severe shortages and now maybe a little bit of alleviation in terms of getting some of the oral drugs on board, which is uh, really great. Um, NIH has not only made recommendations regarding uh, these uh, treatments for outpatients, both monoclonal antibodies and oral therapy, but they actually put them in order of preference, which I thought was, you know, saying something that they, they you know, so this is, um, this is the, the one, two, three, four, uh, these are your, you know, preferred options. So we'll start with memetrelvir plus ritonavir. Um, that's a twice daily uh, option, five days. Uh, you want to initiate, I think all of these agents, you want to initiate ASAP, and I can, I may be able to address that in a bit with our, uh, with our monoclonal antibodies, because we've had more trouble. We were very on top of it, um, you know, in 2021, and now we're just not, not getting to goal, in, in my opinion. Um, and that's, but citrovimab as a molecular antibody with Omicron is a, a, a very good agent. So it's a, it's, it's rated number two there. Remdesivir, you may know about remdesivir. Paul's going to talk about it shortly because it's been used in the inpatient space. And now it can be used in the outpatient space based on a clinical trial showing efficacy. So I'll talk about that. And then there's molnupiravir. So I'm going to go through these uh, relatively quickly. Nermatrelvir plus ritonavir. Um, uh, this made big news. So this is the oral agent's combination of a newer agent with an older one uh, that was primarily used for HIV care um, uh, you know, and, and isn't really part of most modern regimens. But, uh, but when it's initiated uh, promptly, you can see within three days, but even within five days, um, it's, it's a, there's a significant reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death. So just like a lot of the previous treatments, particularly monoclonal antibodies, the main thing we gain from, uh, from oral treatment appears to be a reduction in severe illness. And so it's gonna be most effective um, in that outcome for folks at high risk. So older individuals, those with mo more comorbid uh, illnesses, those are the folks who really benefit. Um, so there's no doubt this seems like a, a, a beneficial option. It is becoming now more at this point in time, more available in my area. It was really hard to find over the last two weeks, but, uh, but now we're starting to see some doses available. One of the things that uh, is a concern is the risk for drug-drug interactions uh, with nermotropia plus ritonavir. Ritonavir in particular, so it's a, 
Uh, it's a powerful inhibitor of uh, the C um, of cytochrome P450 system. And I think the two drugs in my in my practice commonly that I see that could have you know the most impact here are statins. So I don't have a problem telling a patient, hey, hold your statin for 10 days, um, you know, while you're taking this drug and shortly thereafter, and then restart your statin. I don't think that's a big deal. The bigger problem is on folks uh, with for folks with uh, anticoagulant treatment, particularly warfarin, but also the DOACs are also affected. Uh, by rotonavir. So here you're faced with, uh, I think, more of a dilemma, also remembering that COVID-19 can predispose folks to thrombosis. So um, given the fact that it's, you know, both oral treatments, both forms of oral treatments, whether you're talking about warfarin or you're talking uh, about um, uh, DOAX uh, might be impacted, probably the safest thing is, is just to switch patients at, at risk of thrombosis. That might be folks with atrial fibrillation, um, artificial valves, um, history of significant uh, VTE events, switch them over to low molecular weight heparin treatment at home uh, for a week, and then they can restart their um, oral anticoagulants is what I'd recommend. So that's a, that is the tricky one uh, with this agent. And you might also think, gosh, if that becomes too much because you have a patient person who's sick trying to coordinate that, um, you know, that might be a good time to go to, towards sotrovimab. Remember, the EUA is for folks uh, that are at least 12 years of age. They have to be at high risk of complications. They have to be treated within five days of symptom uh, onset as well. All right. So trovimab has been proven, again, uh, like the other monoclonal antibodies, to have a significant improvement in outpatients uh, and the risk of hospitalization or death. Um, again, if you look at the clinical trial, a lot of folks with high risk of uh, complications a uh, large number of people of color. Um, it seems to retain its activity versus the Omicron variant, which is an important headline that we don't want to ignore. And um, kind of like Casarivimab plus Indevimab, this one can be given in, um, in different forms. Uh, it can be given IM, uh, but it's not approved for that. So that watch that space. That might be something uh, that, that changes in terms of its EUA, and we may see it available uh, for IM dosing, which is which would help. I had a patient who was very sick and unfortunately had about a two-day delay in getting sotrovimab, which is not ideal, obviously, when you have a very high-risk patient. I really was trying to push to get this, um, uh, to get sotrovimab on board right away. Um, so to go over our EUAs again, um, so it's really for folks, so they're, these monoclonal antibodies are used primarily in the outpatient setting. Uh, they're used for individuals who are at high risk of COVID-19 complications. Um, you can see that in the EUA, you don't really have to address uh, vaccination, although with our shortage right now, folks who are vaccinated are not being uh, prioritized for uh, treatment with sotrovimab. Age has to be more than 12 years for sotrovimab, but I think it is worth noting just as a footnote so that we can recall it when, uh, if it becomes available again, uh, banlimab plus edacidumab is now uh, recommended you know, down to the age of very young children. Uh, so it can be used, as we see, especially more children being infected right now than previously as the overall number of uh, cases increases. That's important to recognize, but should not be used right now because of Omicron. Uh, and again, you have to watch these. The infusion takes an hour. They have to be watched for an hour afterwards. There are rare um, adverse events, including anaphylaxis, that, that have happened. So therefore, uh, a crash guard has to be ready with personnel who know how to use it. The, uh, what are those criteria for high risk? Uh, I was describing my patient who was the one patient who received sotrovimab had multiple criteria. I think that's usually who we see uh, because it's rare to see somebody with, say, just diabetes. Um, you know, a lot of times it's diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, obesity. So those who tick, those who tick off more um, categories on this list are generally going to be at higher risk. But you can also use your discretion as well. So, um, so but I think the key is make make the decision early that this is what you want to pursue. Make sure you get the patient and their caregivers to buy into it, and uh, and then activate hopefully your infusion center team to uh, to act. All right. So what about remdesivir? I mentioned that this is relatively new and it's available uh, for outpatients now. It's based on the Pine Tree trial. So these are unvaccinated, non-hospitalized folks with mild to moderate COVID-19, but they did they were at increased uh, risk uh, for complications of COVID-19. Uh, diabetes and obesity were very common uh, in this trial. So it's a three-day course of IV remdesivir. So it's three infusions. Um, they, kinda, they get a loading dose followed by two additional days. 
Uh, in this uh, study, the main outcome they looked at was um, the risk of hospitalization de or death was what the main study outcome. You can see an 87% reduction there, as well as um, additional medical visits uh, for ongoing symptoms also reduced um, in the remdesivir versus placebo group. So this um, trial was uh, stopped early uh, because of the of shifting priorities with the, with the new variant emerging. Um, but it has been approved uh, for uh, outpatients at age 12 plus, um, including children now with uh, young, younger kids uh, with a history of severe disease. So uh, serumdesivir is a treatment option as well, but it's a three-day series of infusions uh, to get to those important outcomes. Molnupiravir uh, had its EUA in December 2021. Um, it's, uh, had, it, it focused uh, in a trial on outpatients who weren't vaccinated. They had one risk factor. It's a, it's a similarly a five-day course. Um, it's supposed to be given within five days of symptom onset. You can see that overall there was a, a more modest reduction compared, uh, say, um, with nermaltrevir, uh, ritonavir, in terms of the risk of hospitalization or death, but it was a significant uh, reduction. Um, this issue of uh, potential fetal harm is, is if you read the, uh, the EUA, uh, it's pretty serious. So um, for women, uh, they are supposed to abstain from sex or use a sure contraception for, uh, for 30 days um, uh, after taking molnupiravir. Um, In addition, they're supposed to have a pregnancy test, and that's a, it's actually recommended they get a serum pregnancy test um, before, um, uh, before initiation of treatment, and which interrupts the whole chain of, like, I really want to get this drug on board as soon as possible to help. Um, and to have to go into a lab when you're sick and potentially infecting other people, I think, is a big problem. Uh, for men, they're supposed to abstain for sex or use, um, I assume, barrier contraception for 90 days um, after a treatment with molnupiravir. So this, that's, uh, that's going to be a, you know, a difficult thing uh, to manage for a lot of folks uh, realistically. Um, and so, so molnupiravir has, you know, but it, it is another one that has the EUA for high-risk adults, mild to moderate COVID-19. Um, it didn't really do a great job, molnupiravir, in terms of improving self-reported symptoms or signs. Um, and it seemed to be similarly effective whether the patients had high or low nasopharyngeal titers of SARS-CoV-2. And, oh, I skipped ahead, sorry. Um, high tire convalescent plasma is an option as well. So in, we've, uh, this has been used among inpatients. It's also been tested among outpatients. Over 1,000 individuals enrolled in this trial is randomized uh, control trial. And this is using that high titer convalescent plasma, which is likely to be more effective uh, versus the, the more, some of the more uh, low titer um, ones that were used previously. So the average time before infusion was six days uh, since symptom onset in this study. And what they found was overall, those who received the plasma versus placebo had a uh, lower risk of hospitalization, lower risk of requiring oxygen overall. And so really seems to be um, a good niche for folks who are immunocompromised, like th those individuals who have a significant history of immunocompromised um, may be the ones who benefit most from high titer convalescent plasma, um, getting that passive immunity. There are some investigational, um, uh, as if that's not even enough information. It's, it's, it's great to have options, it really is. Um, but there is always something in the pipeline when it comes to COVID-19. Whoops. So, uh, really... so as I mentioned, nortrelvir uh, plus ritonavir is indicated now for high-risk uh, patients. What about using it for standard risk, those, those patients who don't have some of those high-risk uh, conditions? Um, and so this is an interim analysis uh, only, but it does seem that when it comes to the risk of hospitalization or death, um, this, or, this um, oral agent, also known as Paxlovid, is effective in reducing, um, reducing that, that risk, um, which is going to be likely lower for, uh, for folks at, at average risk, but still look at, you know, 2.4% of patients receiving placebo uh, in this uh, interim analysis. Uh, we're still being hospitalized or died. And so um, if you start to apl apply this broadly to the many individuals who are at lower risk or standard risk for hospitalization with COVID-19, this starts to have a pretty sizable impact in reducing the impact on hospitalization. So unfortunately, it didn't uh, re it reach its endpoint of um, sustained alleviation of symptoms. Patients with COVID-19 are still going to be symptomatic. I haven't seen, that's a, one of the um, outcomes that's been hard to move in clinical trials. So a lot of these agents more effective at preventing severe illness versus actually alleviating uh, symptoms and shortening the duration. Um, fluvoxamine, there's been interest in so many drugs have 
um, have, tri have tried to treat COVID-19. These are repurposed drugs. Uh, obviously, fluoxamine is uh, an SSRI. It's used for depression. Um, but there was some evidence in non-randomized trials that it could be effective in the treatment of symptomatic COVID-19. And it uh, does have some uh, two randomized trials which support it, although they're somewhat limited. In this large trial out of Brazil, um, fluvoxamine is given as a 10-day course. It was twice daily within seven days of symptom onset. The outcome here, the main outcome, was either hospitalization or an ED visit for more than six hours. And it's that latter uh, that you know, causes some question because right now, you know, in the United States, we've certainly seen ED visits that last longer than six hours for patients with very mild symptoms. It was just a question of the logistics of moving through the ED because they're so impacted right now. Um, and Brazil was, this study was done during, you know, a major surge in Brazil when I imagine their health system was fairly overwhelmed. Nonetheless, for that outcome, fluvoxamine was more significantly effective versus placebo, um, the, but it didn't improve uh, other outcomes such as viral clearance, mortality, or length of hospitalization, or ventilator days. So, you know, cautiously optimistic with regard to fluvoxamine based on that trial. This trial is actually fairly realistic. It's something that, you know, reflects my practice where I use a lot of telehealth for folks with COVID-19 or symptomatic. It took 152 outpatients and they were fully remote, so they were contactless. Um, and they were given fluvoxamine for, at a median of four days. Uh, and it was, again, it was dosed uh, twice daily, but then it was dosed three times daily. Um, and they showed that there was no uh, clear clinical deterioration in patients who were just charting their symptoms at home. Uh, none of them uh, did worse than the fluvoxamine group uh, versus um, six who did worse than the placebo group. So small trial with you know less power um, reflects, I think, a little bit more of my practice. And you know the outcome is is you know it wasn't so objective; it was more subjective. But fluvoxamine may work, and um, and I, I think of it as like if there's nothing else available. Fluvoxamine could be an option. It's, it's relatively safe. You do have to watch for some drug-drug interactions with it as well. Um, new monoclonal antibodies are also being tested. Uh, so this is emubarimumab and romlusimab. Uh, and again, the main outcome that they're looking for is hospitalization or death in their uh, placebo-controlled trial. Folks enrolled within 10 days of symptoms, all at high risk or complications. Now, this one does appear to retain its activity against Omicron, and so we might be seeing action on this EUA relatively soon. So this is another one to watch. It would give us another one uh, besides uh, citrovimab that can be used to treat symptomatic folks uh, with uh, COVID-19. And then there's in, in so bypass. Sorry, I just I kind of laugh because it's like, well, let's let's make it easier to pronounce by avoiding the imab at the end. How about in so bypass? You know, sold. So, uh, but it's it's it is a little bit easier to pronounce. So, but it does have a different mechanism compared with the um, uh, compared with the other monoclonal But it still works on that receptor binding domain of the spike protein. So it's still targeting the spike protein just in a different way. Uh, and in this trial of 407 adults within seven days of onset of symptoms, uh, the uh, randomization to ensovibat versus placebo resulted in 78% risk reduction in hospitalization. ED visits or uh, death. And this is another one that retains its um, activity against Omicron. And this, but is not sought at EUA yet. It's something on the horizon that probably will happen soon. And as I always say, you know, we've got all these treatments and, and luckily with Omicron, so many patients are being managed as outpatients now. Um, and we aren't seeing the, the wave into the hospital. It's just, there's so many people that the hospital is becoming more popular with folks with COVID-19. Uh, and and which is a shame. So I will hand it over to Paul to, to do this to uh, to take over. But first, any comments on on that first part of the talk, and, and particularly the those NIH recommended therapies for uh, outpatients with symptomatic COVID nineteen? Yeah, I think the the NIH and uh, many of us who are clinicians have that same kind of organizational thought. Uh, the the first three recommendations. The reason they're tiered a bit is just uh, because of um, uh, logistics. So, for example, nermotrelivir, ritonavir is oral. So if you can use that, you're not worried about renal dosing or drug interactions. That's the bomb. Um, second is citrovimab, which is excellent, especially for immunosuppressed patients. But, of course, it's an IV infusion. Then you have remdesivir, which has a very good safety profile, but it's three days of serial infusion. Then you get to the drug that has the lowest efficacy, molnupiravir, a pretty clean drug except for the potential genotoxicity concerns. 
but but doesn't have the kind of impact the first three did. So effectively, this really means, I think, that you really have to decide between Paxlovid and Citrovimab, uh, those two. Because uh, remdesivir, honestly, for ambulatory patients is just too logistically difficult to really organize uh, in most settings. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, thanks, Chuck. And, and for hospitalized patients, I think, as you pointed out, there are more than ever in hospitals and with great strain. But people are admitted with COVID, meaning they're there for other reasons, heart attack, GI bleed, and they're found to have positive screening tests versus admitted for COVID-19. And although there's been great changes in our outpatient therapies, especially with the Omicron variant, uh, really the uh, inpatient uh, treatment has remained relatively stable over this time, despite Omicron. And that, that's a reflection of one, that remdesivir is active against uh, Omicron, the intravenous antiviral, and two, anti-inflammatory responses um, uh, 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 from medications really uh, don't distinguish between any of the variants. So much like Chuck showed you the oral recommendations uh, for ambulatory uh, treatment and other avenues intravenous and otherwise, uh, here the NIH is tiered pretty much the severity of infection and the recommendations, which we'll go through uh, uh, here. So the, the cornerstone um, for much of treatment in North America has been the antiviral remdesivir. Uh, the ACT-1 trial was done very early in the epidemic, but was a, a gold standard uh, placebo-controlled, double-blinded, uh, randomized controlled trial uh, that did show a benefit in terms of reduction in length of stay and improved recovery times, which is important if you have people in hospital. Uh, but the mortality uh, benefit really was not identified. And as you can see in the four panels to the right, the later you receive the drug, for example, if you started the drug when someone was in uh, the intensive care unit, much later infection, there did not seem to be any impact uh, compared to earlier as in panel C for people who are on oxygen. If you didn't need oxygen, again, the numbers were small. Um, and so there wasn't statistical significance uh, but as uh, Chuck pointed out in the pine tree study, uh, early outpatient um, infusion was helpful and probably is also true for our patients who might be admitted for other reasons. So we're often using the pine tree type data and three-day infusions for people at high risk in the hospital that don't need oxygen. Now, um, conversely, uh, in much of the world, remdesivir hadn't been embraced because of this solidarity trial. This was a forearm trial with no placebo group uh, that uh, um, looked at also interferon beta, hydroxychloroquine, so again, done very early on. And uh, there wasn't any, this uh, trial was a pragmatic trial. They had minimal collection of data. There wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't ability to do much in the way of subgroup analysis. There was no mortality benefit. So, uh, the, the drug really hadn't been embraced because they thought it was not useful, and they didn't think it helped on length of stay. But again, the practice in many of these sites, for example, uh, much of the remdesivir was um, of that trial was conducted in Iran, for example. It was open label. People could switch treatments. So uh, I think for many of us, we didn't feel it added quite as much uh, as did something like the ACT-1 trial. And then uh, a more recent European trial pretty much replicated what we saw in the ACT-1 trial. This was a smaller trial, but was randomized to remdesivir or standard of care. And, uh, and uh, uh, what they did find uh, was that, um, uh, that uh, there was some uh, decrease uh, delayed time to uh, requiring uh, mechanical ventilation, ECMO or death. So uh, that was an important finding and it does suggest again that for certain patients remdesivir may have benefit even though the overall trial didn't really show uh, better clinical outcomes over that time it also was started a little later than we often use in the united states uh, to give you a, a different idea just from a real world experience uh, this was a very large database uh, that was uh, examined regarding remdesivir use um, uh, over uh, the first parts of the pandemic by my colleague, uh, Brian Garibaldi. 
and, and found that there was a mortality benefit, especially for the same kind of group that uh, the ACT-1 trial um, showed a reduced length of stay, and that's people that are in the hospital on low-flow oxygen. Um, and uh, uh, this kind of study, I think, just helps reinforce that it didn't, it didn't find the alternative, that it didn't help, and helps uh, reinforce that uh, we think remdesivir is a, a useful compound uh, to treat COVID, severe COVID-19 and is really uh, the only FDA-approved drug so far for SARS-CoV-2 infection in the hospital. And so if you look at a, a larger set in the, this retrospective review here um, and uh, the plot, uh, you can get a sense that, um, uh, that if you uh, look at this database, you do see mortality benefit, especially on the low flow, somewhat uh, um, more nebulous on the high flow states that's going to be later in infection. Uh, so again, the earlier you can start remdesivir in patients that are going to uh, do worse, the better. Um, dexamethasone has become a very standard treatment worldwide on the basis of the recovery trial, which uh, especially showed significant benefit if initiated in ventilated patients but even those who were on oxygen also had a statistically significant mortality benefit because of the size of this trial. However, if patients weren't on oxygen, uh, there was a trend towards worse outcomes. So there's always been this uh, approach not to use steroids unless if someone uh, is developed severe COVID-19, um, uh, which is usually that second week of illness during the hyperinflammatory phases. Um, you know, the six milligram dose was sort of picked somewhat arbitrarily for the recovery trial has become a standard. Question is, is higher dose better? And in fact, a lot of ARDS trials looking at steroids used higher doses. And this uh, particular dose finding study uh, here in a thousand patients compared six versus 12 milligrams and found uh, really that um, uh, the time to uh, death curves, as you can see here, sort of uh, split. And um, I uh, and looking at this, I, uh, I would say most people would say we should stick with the six milligram dose. But um, again, uh, how we're treating this, uh, as always, when you're making quick decisions in the early in the pandemic, you're picking what you think might be a good dose. And it's not quite the same as a kind of dose ranging phase one, phase two trials that you you may see. One drug that sort of uh, was in favor, fell out of favor, and came back in favor is tocilizumab, in part because, again, of the large uh, trial done in the UK, uh, the recovery trial, Pragmatic. And here, uh, you know, the monotherapy tocilizumab trials uh, really didn't show a lot of benefit. But because the recovery trial established steroids as part of a standard of care, uh, this uh, tocilizumab trial was done whereby over 80% of people were already on steroids. And this found that there was a um, mortality benefit and decreased need for going on to mechanical ventilation or dying, as well as improved outcomes, especially in a group that had uh, inflammation, uh, generally C-reactive proteins of over seven and a half there and also uh, were people that um, needed uh, increasing respiratory support. So often we're using it in our hospital. If someone's on remdesivir and dexamethasone, but rapidly progressing to high flow oxygen, uh, these are the patients that we're adding tocilizumab. And uh, this gives you an idea uh, when looking at subgroups of the, the smaller numbers that never got steroids in the recovery trial, uh, you didn't see the benefit with tocilizumab, and this was very much in keeping with earlier monotherapy trials of tocilizumab. But when it was combined with uh, the broad anti-inflammatory steroid plus the targeted anti-interleukin-6 receptor blocker tocilizumab, you really then saw the benefit in terms of um, uh, mortality favoring tocilizumab use. Now, uh, this drug, baricitinib, is a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor that hasn't been widely used, but just today, the WHO has put it into their guidance as an alternative to tocilizumab 
Uh, it's been on guidance uh, documents from both the IDSA and the NIH for a while now. Uh, but based on the Act II trial uh, done uh, in 2020, uh, there was a one-day benefit from using baricitinib, but very few people were on steroids in that trial. A newer trial called the Cove Barrier Trial, much like the recovery trial we just discussed, uh, so many of those patients were on steroids, about 80%. And when you added the uh, baricitinib, there was a mortality uh, improvement. So this is an alternative to tocilizumab, and so there's this option of using uh, this drug uh, in addition to steroids for those patients that are getting worse. Um, lastly, in terms of investigational agents, uh, a couple things that are just intriguing, uh, whereas we're not using casirubimab and divimab anymore because of its lack of activity against Omicron, in the recovery trial, it did have uh, a mortality benefit that was seen when given with a substantial infusion, a higher infusion amount, but in this subgroup that was seronegative, meaning these were people that really didn't uh, respond to vaccine or have prior infection. And in those patients, it definitely had some improvement. And uh, I know the FDA was considering uh, expanding the EUA for this drug, but of course, at the moment, at least with the current Omicron variant, the strategy is dead in the water, but does speak a little bit to the convalescent plasma that uh, we discussed earlier, that this, again, may have an opportunity, especially in patients that you think may not respond well to vaccine. Uh, one uh, a drug which I actually was on the data safety monitoring board um, uh, 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 presented its data to the uh, FDA. This is an anti-GMCSF. Again, another uh, rather broader anti-inflammatory uh, agent um, that uh, was used as monotherapy, largely in this case, uh, that did uh, have a positive trial, but there were some issues with the trial in terms of uh, sites and so on. So uh, it's being studied in an ongoing active five trial where it's complexed with remdesivir versus remdesivir monotherapy. So we'll see if this yields any benefit there. Um, there were other trials uh, with um, similar compounds made by other companies uh, that uh, didn't really uh, turn out as well, but were generally smaller trials. I think uh, we're always looking for the right combination of anti-inflammatories in these most ill of patients. So that was a brief tour of the uh, hospitalized um, uh, patients and the treatments there, Faith, and uh, I think we have uh, some time for the post-test and hopefully questions. We sure do, and thank you so much um, again, Dr. Allwater and Dr. Vega, for such a great presentation. Um, as a note, these slides should be available now to download in the resource window. Um, please ask any questions you may have for faculty by submitting them in the Q&A box, um, but first let's revisit these knowledge questions. Um, so, Will is a 14-year-old boy with sickle cell disease who has mild COVID-19, most likely due to the Omicron variant, with first symptoms four days earlier. Uh, which of the following list drugs that are preferred for patients like Will? Um, bamlanivimab, edizivimab, or molnupiravir, casirivimab, imdevimab, or fluvoxamine, uh, nirmeltrevir, ritonavir, or citrovimab, uh, nirmeltrevir, ritonavir, or molnupiravir. Okay. So here's our learner response before. And here's the response after. So what is the correct answer here? So it's it's actually number three there, nomeltrevir, ritonavir, and sotrovimab. So you have a, unfortunately, a, a young male, 14 years of age, uh, based mild COVID-19, um, and so and he has sickle cell disease, so he's high risk. And so uh, he would fit in the age category for approval for both nemaltrevir, ritonavir, the oral drug, or sotrovimab, the uh, injected monoclonal antibody. And one thing you could, way you could look at this is the way I'm trying to teach my, uh, my nine-year-olds to look at questions is when you don't know the answer, think about elimination, because we know that banlivimab, etasivimab, castorvimab, plus indevimab aren't being used right now because of Omicron, so you can eliminate the first two. 
Um, and molnupiravir is just not as preferred, so it doesn't meet that you know top tier um, guidance from NIH. So therefore, uh, be best off with nirmaltrevir, ritonavir, or citrovimab. So I wonder if my nine-year-olds could get this right. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll pose a question to them tonight. Yes, please let us know. Thanks. All right. And the next question, um, which of the following statements about nirmaltrevir and ritonavir is correct? Uh, so the FDA approved for patients 18 years or older at high risk of complications uh, must be initiated within three days of symptom onset, no drug-drug interactions of concern, or administered orally twice daily for five days. Okay, and again, this is um, how our learners responded um, at the beginning. And here's the response now. So what's the correct answer here? I guess I can go again. So administered orally uh, twice daily uh, for five days. So that's that's the real benefit here is, is the convenience. And once this um, agent is available, I think in, um, in the production increases, it's more widely available. It's really gonna hopefully change the game when it comes to outpatient management of, um, of uh, COVID-19. Um, so the, uh, but yeah, it's indicated down to age 12. Um, the, you wanna initiate uh, therapy as soon as possible, but given up to uh, five days from, uh, from the onset of symptoms. And with, we talked about with Bertonavir, um, as a P450 inhibitor, it's, it's very important to consider drug-drug interactions when prescribing as well. So that's for, uh, for folks who are on you know, that long list of medications, really scan that list to make sure there's no significant drug-drug interactions before getting this agent. Fantastic. All right, and here is our next question. In the multi-center retrospective comparative effectiveness study of remdesivir by Garibaldi and colleagues, significantly reduced mortality was observed in which group of patients? Patients not receiving supplemental oxygen, patients receiving low flow oxygen, patients receiving high flow oxygen, or all hospitalized patients? Okay. This is what Lerner said before. And here's what Lerner said after. So uh, what was the correct response here, Dr. Allwater? Yeah, so Faith, this uh, low flow oxygen was in this very large uh, uh, cohort-based study found uh, improvement in terms of mortality. And this again is very, uh, in keeping at least with the same group that had benefit in the ACT-1 trial in terms of reduced uh, length of stay and time to clinical improvement. So again, earlier uh, in a hospitalized state, uh, the antiviral appears to have uh, effect rather than later. So um, it depends when you initiate it. And so it, the other answers aren't quite correct. Excellent, thank you. And this is our final question here. Um, so true or false, according to the recovery trial, uh, concomitant use of corticosteroids blunted the effect of tocilizumab. Is this true or false? Okay. This is what we said before. And here's what we said after. So what was the correct response here? Yeah, so uh, it... Uh Corticosteroids did not blunt the benefit of tocilizumab. It was actually the opposite. So the answer is false. It, it's been an amazing observation that steroids plus other uh, uh, directed anti-inflammatory uh, inhib inhibitors, so tocilizumab, anti-IL-6, or even baricitinib, that using them together uh, appeared to benefit those patients that seemed to be really progressing in that most severe and hyperinflammatory phase. So uh, this really has been a sea change, uh, <laughs> which um, really is just building upon the trial experience that has been rather rapidly accumulated in terms of dealing with this uh, pandemic. Wonderful. Well, thank you both of you for offering your insights to those knowledge questions. Um, to our learners, we are now moving into the Q&A 
um, portion. As a reminder to submit a question, you can uh, do that to the left of the screen. Even if you're on demand, um, we may just answer your question in an upcoming webinar. So uh, please do ask and um, keep your eyes peeled. Um, so our first question is uh, from one of our loyal learners um, who asks, do we have any thoughts or concerns on the Omicron variant BA.2? So I'll take that one, Faith. Um, so the Omicron variant has already split into subtypes. This also happened with the Delta variant. Uh, the major issue with the uh, additional subtype uh, of the Omicron variant has been so-called S-gene dropout. So early on, it was recognized that Omicron was actually recognized in South Africa uh, because um, a certain PCR platform did not detect the spike protein, but detected other genes uh, in the virus. So this so-called S-gene dropout was a key for identifying people with this new variant. Uh, this uh, subvariant doesn't register, or it, the spike protein is still picked up there, so you don't see that uh, dropout. I don't think that's as important now since Omicron has really become 100% uh, of the variants um, that are uh, circulating, at least here in the United States. Uh, so uh, whether this will lead to further mutations and changes, uh, it's unclear. But uh, as mentioned earlier, the, the, the Omicron variant actually was thought to have developed from a much earlier uh, uh, virus uh, and not really, it did not evolve from Delta. So we'll, we'll see if there's any significance. So far, it's not clear it has any clinical significance. Great, thank you for that. Um, and I'll toss this one. Oh, sorry, Dr. Vega, were you gonna say something? No, I was not. No. Well, great. Um, well, I have a question for you then. Um, has access to the new antivirals improved? Um, yes, I, I'm starting, we're starting to see some rays of hope at this point. And I'm sorry for all of our viewers who are likely to be frustrated in, in trying to treat COVID-19 over the past uh, month uh, in December and January. Um, but uh, we are starting to see more of the Nermatrelvir uh, with Ritonavir available. There is a, um, a federal government uh, website that tracks uh, who has the drug and where it is, where it is available. Um, in our experience uh, here in Southern California, that lags a little bit behind. So when we have identified a pharmacy, for example, that's, that pharmacy hasn't actually had the drug, but we're starting to see, uh, I think, more supply overall and more of those um, uh, more of the oral drugs available. And so I, I'm hoping that, you know, that delay lasts, you know, another several weeks and not months is what my hope is. And, and, and with monoclonal antibodies, it'll be interesting to see what happens with monoclonal antibodies as we get new variants and we have more of these oral drugs available. Fantastic. Um, and um, Dr. Allwater, to your knowledge, is remdesivir being developed as an oral treatment? Yes, so remdesivir, uh, there was an earlier inhaled remdesivir trial that's been stopped, but uh, remdesivir is actually a prodrug that needs to be metabolized. So there are um, uh, uh, both uh, active metabolite and also an oral formulation of remdesivir that's being uh, examined. So um, uh, hopefully other uh, antivirals are also in play and I would say the one that I think everyone's hoping for is a protease inhibitor that is not ritonavir, that doesn't require boosting by ritonavir um, just because of the drug interaction issues. Fantastic. Um, I will ask one more question here um, and then we can wrap this up. But do we know how well the treatments work in people who are up to date with vaccination when they were tested in people who weren't vaccinated? I think that's a very sharp question, and, and I can just answer from you know a, a primary care perspective where I'm seeing all kinds of different combinations of, of vaccines being applied in my patients or no vaccination. Um, the I would imagine the clinical trials are showing more efficacy because they're you know they're enrolling patients with at high risk of illness. They're, they're enrolling individuals who aren't vaccinated. But I think of it the same way. I think about layers of protection and prevention of COVID-19. You have your vaccines, then you're wearing your mask, and you're you know being judicious with your uh, activities and groups. 
Um, same way when we have our very high-risk individuals, those who are older with multiple comorbid conditions. Um, yes, maybe they were vaccinated, uh, but, I'm, but I know that they're still at elevated risk uh, for hospitalization due to um, those risk factors present. So I'm going to aggressively try to treat them. And again, you, it's not a, a place where you want to sit and try to decide. You really want to act as quickly as possible because that's where your therapy is going to be most effective. Fantastic. Well, again, um, thank you to uh, both of you for joining us and, you know, lending all those valuable insights to our learners today. Um, for our learners, if you'd like to claim credit, please click that claim credit button. It'll also appear when the webcast ends. Uh, be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. Uh, you'll get that through your email. As always, your responses will help us develop further education. Um, to our podcast listeners, um, please... Um, rate and review. It only takes a few seconds and does help us grow our channel, reach more people. And for those of us joining us on YouTube, please be sure to take the post test into the description to claim CME credit. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. Um, thank you. And we will see you again, Dr. Allwater and Dr. Vega. Take care. Thank you, baby. Thank Thanks, you. everybody.